0: My name is David Connett and my guest today is Peter Mayhew, director and researcher at
1: LightWords Imaging. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, David. Looking forward to a few interesting topics to discuss today. What is on the agenda today? Got a few interesting topics to meander through and take a look at. Uh, we're going to have a discussion first of all about waste and pollution. We'll then go into some of the some restrictive practices uh, topics, and we'll also take a right turn into some market statistics. And then we've got a very interesting and finally conversation about the future of work. So lots of things to talk about today. Okay, right, Spain. Tell me about it. Well, this is the story um, about Spain and the manufacturers who are being now asked to cover the full cost of recycling. The Spanish government has um, approved uh, some new waste regulations that they see as reducing the volume of waste by around 15% by 2030, obviously part of their overall uh, sustainability and environmental agenda there. Hopefully, it's going to raise a lot of money as well for the Spanish economy, some 725 million euros. Um, really based around the whole principle of the polluter pays. Interesting topic, this one, because it does impact on our industry quite a bit, I think. It certainly does, because as I
0: understand it, at the moment in Spain, you have the municipal waste system, and then you have dedicated you know, recycling schemes. So manufacturers at the moment pay the difference between municipal waste costs and the recycling cost. As an example, if the municipal cost is, say, €50 Euros a tonne, that's to collect the waste, sort it, and take it to landfill, and the cost of recycling a cartridge is €60 Euros a tonne, the manufacturer only has to pay the difference between the the municipal cost and the the cost of that specific product so say 10 euros a ton however that means the burden on recycling falls on society as a large and not on the manufacturer so that the plan is now that you put a ton of cartridges on the market say the cost is you know 60 euros a ton then you'll pay 60
1: euros for that ton not 10 euros yeah, it's, it's an interesting proposition, but let me, let me ask you a question, David. Do you think that a policy like this actually does reduce waste or does it merely sort of defer that waste entering the waste stream or maybe shift it to somewhere else in some way? Do you, do you think it actually achieves the, the goal that the Spanish government think it's going to achieve? I think that these sort of strategies
0: you know, have a short-term effect medium-term effect and a long-term effect in the short term it will generate revenue 725 million euros or whatever that money will be reinvested into improving recycling schemes in the medium term uh, the more that can be recycled the more circular the economy the more jobs that get created etc. medium to long term i think manufacturers will look very closely at how they make a product how they package a product because the less they put on the market, the less money they're going to pay. I think it is it is a strategy for the next 10, 20, 25 years, because you have to deal with what you have now. You have yeah. to, uh, through taxation, you then have to make uh, the manufacturer who's making the profit at the end of the day, pay the true cost of the recycling. But ultimately, yeah, well, I, agree with ultimately, you, ultimately there. you want less stuff put on the market. You know, And if you... Parallel that with, you know, improving the repair. How many TVs get recycled because they're broken and they can't be repaired? Mm. How many printers get thrown away because they can't be repaired? It is about a strategy, a long-term strategy about using less, reusing more, and paying the true cost of the recycle. At the end of the day, it will be the consumer that pays the true cost of the recycling. So if they buy that new TV, that new printer, built into that price will be the true cost of you know, repair
1: and and recycling. I guess my point here, David, is that I think the actual sort of Volume of waste may not actually change. It sort of gets, you know, maybe it doesn't enter the waste stream quite so quickly because of reuse or because of repair and right to repair, etc. That may sort of defer or delay that waste coming into the waste stream there. And you're right, off the back of that, you know, there's additional revenue generated which helps to pay for those programs. So you're absolutely right. As a strategy over the longer term, it generates revenue, it shifts that waste around, it, it makes what's in the in the market, work a bit harder, work a bit longer, which is all to the good. And you know, in that regard, you know, there's a lot of positive there. But I was also interested in um, a couple of other little things in here. First of all, I, I note with interest that Itira had a little bit of influence on uh, this change in the rules in the Spanish we regulations, which I was quite interested too. And hats off to them for that. But also, there's other little highlights here that I also. Picked up on the third countries, countries that are outside of the um, EU, you know, also have increased reporting um, requirements. you know, If they start to import their waste into into Spain, which I thought was another interesting thing, being a Brit in the UK uh, now classified as a third country, you know that you know that impacts on um, on the UK as well.
0: Yeah, fundamentally, for years now, countries have exported their waste to other countries to have it processed. And China shut their door, Indonesia, Malaysia, even last week Turkey shut their door to dealing with other people's plastic waste. The reality is you've got to deal with the waste where it originates. So UK waste should be dealt with in the UK. German yep. waste should be dealt with in Germany, American waste should be dealt with in America. Yeah. And the consumer, the taxpayer, has to pay the full price of that. You can't stick it in a container and dump it in somebody else's river or backyard, you're halfway around the world. Yeah. That's the thing, you see. Once consumers start to realize they pay for this, they will say, I don't need a new TV every two years. I've got a very good friend. But he's got a TV so big, you can't sit in front of it and relax and, and watch a TV program. I think the only time it is really good is when you're sat in the garden and the football's on. You can watch <laughs> a match on the TV. Be sat in the garden having a beer and a barbecue. But yeah, and this is the thing over the last 30, 40 years, we've become consumers and we're just generating so much waste. And that's the thing that has to change if we're really going to reduce global warming, if we're really going to create more value jobs uh, in in Europe, wherever. You can pay somebody to flip burgers, or you can pay somebody to to repair your printer, or you can repair your computer, or your TV, or whatever. I just think we have to get back into that repair culture. And things like this tax in Spain, making people pay the full cost of recycling, is just one of the instruments that used to achieve that overall effect.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. On the
0: subject of waste, should we waste no more time and talk about, or one of the creators of waste is the lack of repair in modern
1: consumables. There's a big subject as well. We've got this report here from the United States Federal Trade Commission. Um, It's titled Nix in the Fix, an FTC report to Congress on repair restrictions. This is a report that really looks to discuss the different ways that manufacturers of a wide range of products Use essentially restrictive practices, you know, after the product is sold to make it harder for consumers to repair products that maybe become faulty, meaning that, you know, that product comes out of use sooner than what it may do. And they, they cite some of the tactics that are, that are used by manufacturers such as product design that complicates or prevents repair, the you know the non-availability of parts and uh, repair information, designs that make uh, repairs less safe or almost impossible to to carry out. There's a list of about nine or ten of these things that um, that manufacturers do. I guess for our audience here, maybe this will not be too much of a surprise to hear this, but it was interesting to see this in a report from quite a respected organisation here in the United States. And I think adding their the, the postscript to their report was that despite their claims to the, to the contrary, manufacturers' repair restrictions are just simply not justified in many, many instances. And I think that was really quite a damning you know, indictment on manufacturers. And it also goes to underline your point there about how fundamentally manufacturers' business models really have to change in order to embrace the speed at which we've got to make these changes. I mean, 2030, for some of these goals is really not long, nine years. That's not a great deal of time. Also had a couple of product life cycles. Peter, too many manufacturers make
0: spares unavailable. So you're forced into buying a new product. And even now, and if you're looking like now here in Europe with the voluntary agreement, you know, the OEMs are saying that yes, they're gonna make spare parts more widely available going to put manuals available but guess what that will only apply to printers that cost more than 350 euros which means the average printer in an office or in a home environment won't be covered by that and and that that's just crazy everything should be repairable you know and again they're trying to limit it to professional repairers. so what is a professional repairer i'm an engineer by profession does that mean I'll be able to buy the spare parts? Or do I need to be an accredited repairer or what? And I, I still think the OEMs are fighting a rearguard action to try and slow down and frustrate the green agenda, growth of, of reuse and they need to wake up and smell the coffee. But maybe because most of them are public companies so they answer to the shareholders, it has to be legislation a bit like a wet fish, hits them around the face and says, you have to do this because that's the only way they can say to the shareholders, you know, we're mandated by law to do this. They're not going to uh, do it voluntarily and, and change their business model.
1: It is a challenge. I guess, you know, I, I do have some uh, some empathy and some, you know, if that's the right word to use here, you know, with with manufacturers to yeah. change that business model. If you're a, a large enterprise employee, thousands maybe tens of thousands of people around the world and you're it's built on a on a premise of make and um, make profit you know return that profit back to shareholders back into the pension schemes of your employees to flip that business model or well, to what first of all and that becomes then a political discussion which i'm sure we could spend another two podcasts on exploring we yeah. chose to you know and and you're right it's not just about regulation. It's about government. It's about government policy as well. It's, and that's you know that requires you know joined up thinking as well. Now there's a there's a big conference in the UK bringing together the, the G7, I think it is. I think a big part of that agenda is about globally how we can you know start to bring some of these issues to the fore. There.
0: Here's a, a thing in the UK. You know, there's um, a right to repair network. You know, lobbying uh, government, mm-hmm. and one of the things they're asking for is the value-added tax rate for repairs is reduced. And the government have rejected that because they said, no, it's too expensive, we can't do that. Yet, if you own a super yacht and you get it repaired in the UK, there's no VAT. I'm just thinking, hang on a minute, if I own a super yacht, I can afford the VAT. I just think somewhere in all that is wrong. What's next, Peter?
1: But anyway, hats off to IDC for some very interesting stats about the Western European imaging market and comments made by uh, their program director, Phil Sargent. I know Phil very well. Some interesting stats that he's uh, put out here, that overall the Western European hard copy market increased by nearly 19% year on year in Q1 2021 and uh, shipments of 5.15 million units. Big numbers coming out in uh, Western yeah. Europe. But uh, you've got to dig beneath the dig beneath the surface on these numbers you know where are the, all those
0: printers going? Because we know that print, you know, it's a mature market. Digitalization, et cetera, means that less printing is happening. We know that up to 40% of A3 devices are not being used at the moment. I can only assume hybrid working changes that are coming through that, you know, devices are being ordered to facilitate people working from home or to replace some of the technology in the offices and the older stuff has been pulled out. But is it a long sustainable growth or is it a response to backlogs from last year combined with the growth in hybrid working?
1: Well, you're, you're right there. And it is it is interesting to dig beneath the surface a little bit. Phil Sergeant, you know, references quite rightly here from IDC and says, you know, that um, inkjet shipments increased by some, you know, nearly 30%, you know, with consumer and business devices increasing by double digits, whereas laser shipments were, were down by 2.1% for the quarter. Color shipments declined while monochromes were slightly up. But you, again, you know, that's on the overall picture there. So inkjet going up, and that does, you know, does not. To the, the home
0: sort to of the home, user, home office, yeah. you know, learn from home market. Yeah, things for sure. Nobody's going to buy an A3 and take it home and have it in their living yeah. room.
1: I think there's also some interesting uh, points made in here about um, the different countries as well. Um, you know, and how they're performing in Western Europe. Germany saw you know some increases, you know, but at a slower rate than other countries. France recorded strong growth for unit shipments you know injects increased laser shipments were flat in France but even the a3 uh, colour laser MFps recovered to show some growth in France as well which is interesting and that was a similar story um, in uh, in Italy you know indicating that you know the office markets in Italy are somewhat on the road to recovery but slightly different picture in uh, Spain and the the UK in the UK specifically um IDC highlight that, you know, the higher value A3 MFP shipments declined by more than a third uh, year on year, quarter on quarter there. So um, a big dip there. And uh, I think Spain also on the uh, A3 uh, copy market also saw some contraction as well. So there's also some evidence there that we're, you know, we've got different paces of recovery. And I think it's up to another degree, you know, of, of the way changes in the way people are working and, and printing, it, it segues quite nicely into this other report From context, who have a um, slightly new way of looking at the market, and they counting uh, have a methodology that counts average numbers of of pages. They call it the ANP, that's calculated from ink tank ink tank yield, weighted by units sold, is part of their methodology apparently, which is also quite interesting because they saw over one billion pages printed by ink tank devices in uh, in Q1, which is a which is a huge huge number and uh, a growing number too. So again, it's this nod to inkjet in the in the home office and Soho environment. I think it is.
0: It's easier, it's less messy in the home environment. If you've ever seen a, a toner cartridge uh, drop on a carpet, it's it's not pretty by any means. <laughs> not and not so. Because the toner dust is so fine, it's really hard to hoover up because uh, the dust goes straight through the motor. Um, so yeah, it, it's a challenge. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's
1: interesting. I'm on this. That has been my experience. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you're talking experience there. I have this um, this image of trying to hoover up toner and then see it blow out the other end of the uh, of the vacuum cleaner. There. That, so that's quick, it. funny story. Long time ago, <laughs> I was a
0: remanufacturer, and I was very pleased, proud that we invested in this uh, big vacuum system to extract uh, the toner and it was all collected in, in, in a bag so it was all installed and you know we painted uh, the factory and the it looked very professional it looked very clean very spot on you know, very prayer and at the end of the first day they uncoupled the, the bin and there's a bag in it which is full of toner so i said no 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 yeah i'll do that and we'll take a picture so we pull it out and i lift the bag out of the bin and there's a the tiniest tiniest of metal uh, spurs on, on the rim of the bin and as I lift this plastic bin out it cuts a perfect line in the plastic bag and approximately 15-20 kilos of waste toner just poured out of the bag like water and spread all over the floor and then there was this big dust cloud and when it all settled the, the walls were black the floor was black mm-hmm. and all you could see I was covered in toner And as I walked towards the door, you could just see there's two footprints where (laughs) I'd got under my shoes, yeah. And and it was another week before, you know, we could, by the time we cleaned it up, repainted it, fixed it all and everything else, yeah, but yeah. So, believe me, you know, I think... Toner has its place, but in the home environment, I, I would suggest an inkjet printer might be better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know, as much as there's a lot of inkjets got into um, home offices now, you know, there's also um, a fair few uh, of those, those inkjets have been swapped out for low cost laser MFPs for, for a couple of reasons, whether they're looking for, for better security or for better connectivity or more professional device. A number of reasons uh, there, but uh, I think they're there. You know, I, I, I wonder think how it, many homes have had to be
0: redecorated as a result. I think it's all about what the person needs. Every decision will be based on what they need, what they want, what they can afford, and they won't want, you know, a fax machine, and they won't want a great big thing. So, it, it is all about, you know, the footprint, the uh, and what the the device does, and the budget. The thing is, it brings us on to what is the future of work good yeah. question a good and finally question that. <laughs> We that we, we've got this sort of hybrid working which was an an initial reaction to you know the covid pandemic to keep business going across europe there is a a growing hybrid working model some of the big companies in the world the banks are saying it so what is the future of work because if you look at the office i mean it is it is really a huge sector you've got catering you've got it you've got all sorts Hybrid working means that you'll have less people in offices, which means you'll need less office space. In some respects, that could be a good thing because some offices could be repurposed into residential apartments or something like that. Some of that change is temporary. Some of that change is permanent. And the one thing we don't know yet is just how big it's going to be. And I think it's also a, a generational thing. I think younger workers probably more engaged with it. I would certainly swap you know, a two-hour commute for work from home. I think there are issues about it, but yes. are people disadvantaged? But you know, if somebody's in the office, do they get promoted because they're in the office? I think these are just hybrid working is with us. I think that uh, it's not going to go away, and it's just about over the next four or five years, how big that sector is going to be um and how service industries and we talk about office printing except how
1: we adapt and change to support that new model i mean it is an interesting topic and You you see that model already starting to evolve, I mean, as people start to return to to work. And if their job permits it, you know, then they may be only, you know, going in, you know, one or two days a week rather than a full five days a week. So they've halved their commuting time, which is good for the environment in in many respects, but um, perhaps not so good for the amount of visits that the guy has to come and change the bottles in the water, water cooler. For example, or replenish the vending machine in the uh, in the cafeteria. You know, yeah. it's um, well, there's all those ancillary um,
0: services that get impacted. I do have a friend who uh, I'd say he's of our generation, and when his company went into hybrid working, most of the people. We're working from home but he was still coming to the office and he said the owners have remodeled the offices they've taken desks and chairs out he said we've got a a collaboration area we've got a a networking area he said we've got a training area he said I sit at my desk now and I look at these areas and it looks more like a Starbucks or a Costa coffee than it does a working office he said but I have to say it seems to be working our productivity is up we're bringing in more business where the the factory has been realigned he said the owners of are investing money in terms of what we do and and improving productivity he said and i think it's up he said and for the first time he's worked for this company for 10 years i've actually got somewhere where i can go and sit quietly eat my sandwiches at lunchtime he said uh, and i have a, a decent cup of coffee he said and we we didn't have that before the pandemic <laughs> They've just had a kettle and a dingy uh, you know, mm-hmm. kitchen, but do you know what he really liked the most? What's that? The, the toilets have been completely remodeled, <laughs> and I'm, what is it? You know, it's a typical office gents toilet. He said, There's two rooms, gents and ladies, and you've you've got the stalls and the urinals and you know, without getting too graphic. That was all ripped out, he said, and now you go in, he said, and there are just stalls and in each in each stall is the toilet, a sink, a warm air, hand dryer. He said, and it's almost a pleasure to go to the loo.
1: Well, that's a that's that's a that's a positive. That's an upside, I suppose. On the one yeah, hand, yeah. There. So when, there's a whole line of conversation we could go down there it about it's changing. Yeah, there's a whole that's a whole other conversation there about uh, about gender neutrality in the uh, in yeah. the workplace yeah. as well. Yeah, I guess conversely on this future work, if you spend, I don't know one, two, three days of your working week or 50% of your working month travelling into the office, then that means the other 50% you're working at home. But that throws up its own set of complications and issues about beyond the sort of practicalities that we probably all overcome now if you work from home for part of your time, you know, where you... Or you converted a back bedroom or you've got a base in a in another room somewhere where you've got your laptop set up and you do do the work that you've got to do but it's that switching off thing isn't it you know making sure that you that you genuinely can you know can switch off from from work and the demands of work and and somewhat regulate the blend between you know work life and and home life and that's a that's a healthy thing to um to keep a watch on it's very easy these days to have your email right there on your phone and um you know even have multiple mailboxes on your on your mobile phone there and you just see one generic notification that comes up and says oh you've got seven emails in your inbox there and you click on that app and before you know where you are, you not three of those e- emails are from work and two are to do with home and another two are a junk or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. you just can't help yourself, you know, to uh, to click on those work emails at the same time as you click on your personal emails. And that's uh, that's say you have to be mindful of, because even that notification will just eat away at you in the back of your head, won't it? You know, and you just think, oh, I must just check that. And then you've got that message or you've seen that instruction or you've got that piece of information there. And that's going to so that's crossing a boundary. In my view, you know, maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned in that regard, but um, but I'm concerned about that. I manage it well.
0: Work emails are on my work computer. Private emails are on my, my phone, and never the two meet. You know, at the end of the day, I close, I turn the computer off, I close the door, and that's work over.
1: I agree. Actually, I mean, I, I give the example there of how these things can cross over, but in reality, I have a separate work phone, separate, you know, home personal phone. Now the twain should meet. You know, yes, I've got an email, work email on my work phone, home email on my home phone. now. but you're right. You know, the work computer is completely separate from the home laptop. Now the twain should should meet. And you know, and like you, you know, shut the door at the end of the day. It is possible to reach me out of hours, but I've got to know
0: you. If I know you, you know how to reach me. And most people know that if you're going to phone me up at nine, ten o'clock at night, it has to be uh, life-changingly important.
1: Gosh, we've been uh, been speaking here for uh, quite a well, probably our full uh, full allocation of time. A
0: bit of editing needed on this, I think, but I think it was a great conversation.
1: Thanks for your input. Really appreciate it. I believe I hear that we may have a special guest for our next podcast. Indeed. <laughs> On that hanging
0: note, yeah. I'll say goodbye. We we have a tentative guest who's just rearranging his uh, diary to uh, to be able to join us. So all being well, yes, we'll have a a third guest in our next podcast. So that'll be good. Excellent. Okay, Peter. Thanks very much, and thank
1: you, David.